0: Wonderful, wonderful to see God's hand on our church over 30 years. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 10. The book of Isaiah, chapter 10. If I could capture this sermon in a nutshell, um, it would be about the ways that sin is manifested through systems and structures of human existence. And I'm going to do something outrageous today. I'm going to try to attempt to give a 35-minute sermon on something called institutional racism. <laughs> so uh, I want to say from the, from the onset, this sermon is really not about what to do. Some of you are going to ask me, now what do I do at the end of this sermon? And certainly I'm going to give some things that we can do. But the sermon is more about how to see than what to do. And I think we need a, a, a vision. Uh, correction, some, our vision to be corrected. And so it is out of seeing differently that we can do differently. And so the goal in this is to flesh out our multiracial value, that in order to have a conversation, a healthy conversation on race, we need to have it on three levels, three perspectives, an individual perspective, an interpersonal perspective, and an institutional perspective. And unless we're having the conversation on all three levels, we're going to miss out an important factor and facets of the conversation. And so a couple of months ago in August, I talked about the interpersonal realities of race and how do we navigate it, being the kind of church that we're called to be at New Life. Last week... I talked about individual racial prejudice, and today I want to talk about institutional racism. And in order to get the full scope of what I'm getting at and what I'm presenting to you, you need to listen to all three, not just one of them, because this gives you the full picture of who we are called to be and what we are called to to do. And I also want to say it's impossible for me to bring up every detail on this topic in 30, 35 minutes. And so I'm hoping that a class will be offered in the future. But more than that, at this point this week, I want to encourage you to uh, to listen to this sermon again. You're not going to be able to absorb everything I'm going to tell you. It's going to be a lot. You're not going to be able to absor- absorb it. But I'd like you to consider listening to it again sometime this week, And so Isaiah 10, we're going to talk about structural sin and institutional racism, and we're going to be in Isaiah 10, beginning uh, verse 1 and 2, hear the word of the Lord. Woe well, to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the, the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive everything you have for us this day, and may we respond to the magnitude of this issue, to the power of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. When we think about the issue of race and racism in this country... We have many images that come to mind, and one of the unfortunate things about the images that come to mind is these images often highlight only the blatant and obvious ways racism manifests in our culture that has become culturally unacceptable. And so whether you're talking about the KKK or whether you're talking about burning crosses and racial slurs and things like this, we often focus on the obvious ways of racism and how it manifests in our society. But some of the worst manifestations of evil is often not seen with our eyes. And this is why the image of the iceberg has become so important to our spirituality at New Life. Earlier last month, I mentioned that we changed our logo to be the iceberg because it's a good picture of what spirituality, Christian spirituality is to be. That 10% of the iceberg is seen, 90% of the iceberg is not seen, and God wants to transform us not just on the surface. God wants to transform us form us beneath the surface of our lives. And if that's the truth, the case for us individually, it's the case as well for us socially and institutionally. And so a couple of months ago, I introduced this iceberg that... Uh, talked about the covert and the overt ways that racism finds itself in our culture. And on the tip of the iceberg, what you see is the kind of racist activities that have become socially unacceptable. Overt racism, things that are obvious that our culture says this is unacceptable, this is not good behavior. And so whether you're talking about the KKK or swastikas or the N-word or lynching or hate crimes or racial slurs, this is typically what we have as a society said, this is not Right. And it is beneath the surface, however, of the iceberg that much of the covert racism, that which is socially acceptable, continues to pervade our society. And so whether you're talking about mass incarceration or racial profiling or police brutality or presumption of guilt or implicit bias or redlining, that is how resources are used, uh, how neighborhoods are, are uh, siloed, if you will, to get resources or not get resources, housing discrimination, hiring discrimination, these are often socially acceptable covert ways that racism works its way out in our society. And what this diagram is communicating is the truth that the spiritual and and demonic power of racism is a multi-layered and multifaceted problem. And because it is multi-layered, multifaceted because it's more than just individual, but because it's also institutional, we need a way of responding that goes beyond just individualistic strategies. And so there are two strategies that come to mind. When people think about dealing with racism, particularly in the church, we have two strategies that come to mind. The first strategy is what I call the conversion strategy. And the idea behind conversion strategy is this, if we can only get non-Christians to become Christians... The work of racism and racism will come to an end. And so our goal becomes, let's evangelize as many people as possible, because if they know Jesus, racism will come to an end. But history has shown that some of the worst racist behavior have come from people who call themselves Christians. Amen. Amen. And so... Uh, And so the first strategy of conversion strategy is important, but it's not the full picture. The other side of it is we introduce something called friendship strategy. That if we could only get people who look different from each other to have friendships. If we could only teach people how to relate to one another. If we can only teach people how to have skills and an approach to navigate through the conversations of race and such, racism will be overcome. And so the conversion strategy is important, but it's not the full story. The friendship strategy is important, but it's not the full story. We need a larger strategy that can encompass the institutional and multifaceted ways of racism. And so when I talk about race, I, I've tried to, over the last couple of months, be very clear as to what I am talking about. When I talk about racism, you have to look at it on two levels. You have to look at it from an individual racial perspective as well as institutional Racism, And so this is the way that I I unpack it. Individual racial prejudice impacts everyone. Everyone in this room has a kind of individual racial prejudice. We've all been socialized to see people in one way or another. Institutional racism is a kind of racism that has impacted people of color historically in particular. The former, that is, individual racial prejudice, has to do with sinful, socialized perspectives. We all see people in a tainted, sinful way often. The latter, institutional racism, has to do with the systemic misuse of power. And unless we are having the conversation on both sides, on individual racial prejudice as well as institutional racism, we're going to talk circles around each other, and we're not going to be on the same page. And so to get a grasp on what institutional racism is, this is my definition of institutional racism. Institutional racism is about about the way power in a society is misused to give advantage to some and disadvantage to others. The way that power in a society is misused to give advantage to some and disadvantage to others. And at the heart of this is what Uh, theologians call structural sin. Now, when I say institutional, I'm referring to the various institutions of society. And so whether we're talking about economic institutions or religious institutions, or political institutions, or military institutions, or law enforcement institutions, or educational institutions, or entertainment institutions. Within all these institutions, there is structural sin present, and the Bible has a lot to say about structural sin, that behind the structural sin that we see in our world are demonic powers that are alive and active. And so in Isaiah 10 the passage I read Isaiah has some strong words he says woe to those who make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless Now the reason we are to read the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets in particular is because the prophets speak to the public dimension of God's love Prophets speak to the public dimension of God's love. Many of us have experienced God's love personally or privately. We know what it's like like to taste the goodness of Jesus. We know what it's like to experience his love and his kindness and his grace and his compassion. But the prophets remind us that God's love is not just a private affair. The prophets remind us that God's love is not just something personal. That God's love is to be worked out in public. It is for this reason that the philosopher Cornel West said that justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. And so in Isaiah 10, we see words of a miscarriage of justice in the public life of the people of God. And Isaiah can't remain silent. The cry of Isaiah is for righteousness. The cry of Isaiah is for right relationships, a right ordering of society. And so to do justice means that every person is taken seriously as a human being made in the image of God. That because every human being is made in the image of God, the way that we treat each other, whether in one-on-one relationships or whether in institutional matters, matters to God. And so Isaiah writes these prophetic words because the people who are in charge of ensuring that society is ordered towards justice are doing the very opposite. And so Isaiah cries out against the larger structures of human existence. Isaiah is saying that on an institutional level, people are being sinned against. Specifically, there were unjust laws that were oppressing people. Justice was being withheld from the poor, and the widows are being mistreated. And so when you look at Isaiah 10 and multiple passages like this in the Old Testament, we learn at least three things about the nature of sin. And the first thing we learn is that sin is structural, not just individual. Sin is structural, not just individual. That is, in the sinful sinful structures of society are created surely by sinful people. But when sin gets entrenched in structures, it takes on a life of its own. I spoke to some people this past week who work in the Department of Education as teachers. And for all the good that takes place in the Department of Education, it is an institution that is often filled with structural sin. And so what begins to happen is you know that the sin takes on a life of its own. A particular culture is created that, that Paul calls powers and principalities, and Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities, spiritual places uh, wicked and wicked places and spiritual places here. What Paul is saying there in Ephesians 6 is the demonic that we wrestle with are the unseen spiritual beings, but not just unseen spiritual beings, the unseen spiritual beings that are rooted in structures of institutions as well. And so sin is structural, not just individual. We also learn out of this Isaiah 10 passage that God is greatly angered when those in power perpetuate injustice. When they, those in power perpetuate injustice. God is grieved when anyone perpetuates injustice. God is especially angered when people in power perpetuate injustice. God, and God so much so that God often would judge his people very harshly in the Old Testament because of the ways that those in power perpetuated injustice. Now, it was Dr. Carl Ellis, a, a, a theologian of the New Testament, who said that in the scriptures in the Old Testament, there are two kinds of covenant faithfulness. Very important information here. Two kinds of covenant faithfulness faithfulness. The first type of covenant faithfulness, that is, how, do, how do, how are we faithful to God? He uses a fancy word called epistemological faithfulness. That is, epistemology has to do with knowledge, has to do with doctrine, has to do with theology, how we think about God. That we have to think rightly about God, and we use the scriptures and Jesus Christ as the full revelation of God to think rightly about God and the way of his kingdom. And so there's epistemological faithfulness. But in the Old Testament, it's not just about how do, how do you think about God, it's also the ethic, there's an ethical component to it as well. How do we love one another? And so in the Old Testament, there's epistemological faithfulness and ethical faithfulness. And Dr. Ellis reminds us that whenever God judged his people, he didn't judge them because of epistemological unfaithfulness. Often we judge people because they don't think the right way about God. They don't have the right doctrine. They don't have the right theology. And of course, doctrine and theology matters. But often we judge people in ways that God doesn't. We judge people because they don't think correctly. In the Old Testament, God judged people not because of epistemological unfaithfulness, but because of ethical unfaithfulness, because they weren't treating others the right way. And because they weren't treating others the right way, God would send them into exile. And so uh, judgment came because of ethical unfaithfulness faithfulness. And so we learn sin is structural, not just individual. God is greatly angered when those in power perpetuate injustice. And then thirdly, our call as the people of God is to address the manifestations of sin in the systems created by people. That is, it is possible for someone to be forgiven of their sin and still be fully formed by a bad system. Amen. It's possible for Christians to be forgiven of their sin, but because you are in a particular institution, the way of that institution can form you more than God. And so it's more than just being forgiven. It's a radical new way of ordering our lives. And so as Christians, by God's grace, our job It's to work for a world in which people are treated fairly. It is with Jesus saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is at this point where I want to focus on how structural sin has manifested in our country through institutional racism. And in order to do this, we have to go backwards. At New Life, we have a spiritual formation tool called the Genogram. And essentially, a Genogram is a tool that helps us examine the ways that we have been shaped by our families, that if we're not careful about it, we'll continue from one generation to the next. And you understand this. If your family has shaped you, and if you're unaware of it and not doing something to come against it, one generation to the next, pattern after pattern after pattern. And so in order to change the future, you often have to look backwards to see how have i been shaped that is inconsistent with the way of the kingdom of god and the way of jesus so i can so so that my future and generations to come are not impacted in the same way i was now if i want if the principle is simple unless we look back to see how we have been improperly formed we will continue the pattern from one generation to the next and i want to do this not just with our individual lives I want to do this from the perspective of U.S. history and racism. Until we examine how we have been improperly formed as a nation, we will continue the pattern from one generation to the next. Now, the goal of doing a genogram as an individual is not to hate your parents. (laughs) It's not to hate your family. The goal of doing a genogram is not... Often, our parents did the best that they possibly could. And we have positive legacies and we have negative legacies. The goal of doing an exercise in the genogram, looking back at how you've been shaped, is not to hate your parents, not to hate your family. And the same applies for our country. To look at the history of our country is not to result in us hating it. On the the other end, it is only when we look honestly at our country that we are truly loving it. And so we have to look at the good and, and the bad and the ugly, and until we're able to have a full perspective on what has happened, we're going to continue the pattern from one generation to the next. I like how James Baldwin said it. He said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And so I want to take you through a short trip through history from the time of the earliest colonizers in the late 1400s and early 1500s through our time today. And in bringing up history, it's important to say that just like human beings, our country has great mixture. There's good and there's bad. I'm grateful to God to live in this country, but I'm not blind to the ways that our country has fallen short over and over and over again. Now, for some people, to speak about our country's dark past is unacceptable. I was driving on the Cross Island Parkway, and I saw uh, an American flag that was on one of the gate areas, and it said, love it or leave it. And as I was driving, I was thinking, that's not really going to work. This is just not a good solution. Our refusal... To honestly take a look at the history of racial inequality and oppression often reveals idolatry in our hearts because only God is without sin. I mean, you could get a better amen. I can get a better amen. Only God is without sin. That's good theology right there. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is subject to sin. Uh, stay with me, people. I know I'm getting deep now, but stay with me. And so with that, let me offer a, a brief history of racial inequality in the U.S. And the primary script of this genogram, so when you look at the genogram, there are scripts. There are ways that we, that's been handed to us. Messages that have been handed. The primary message as it pertains to racial oppression in this country uh, is what Brian Stevenson has called the narrative of racial difference. I want you to hold on to that phrase because this phrase, I'm going to unpack this phrase for the rest of our time. The narrative of racial difference. The narrative of racial difference is more than just recognizing differences in race. The problem with this narrative is of racial difference is that differences... Are assigned value and worth. In other words, a hierarchy was created based on racial differences. Some were up here, some were down here, and hierarchy was created. And so race is a social construct. That simply means that people established a kind of hierarchy that placed value on some and little value on others. Now, race, as we have understand it today didn't always exist in this form there was a time when white people weren't white there was a time when white people weren't the european people who first settled in this country were not recognized as white they were recognized as british french german italian irish dutch they were identified through their ethnic and cultural distinctives but when slavery began, a shift began to happen. The differences in European cultures were de-emphasized and white people were be, be, began to be seen as a collective group of people. And so to be seen as a collective whole had some practical ramifications and consequences. Namely, to be white was to be seen as superior. Everyone else was seen as inferior. Now, let me pause parenthetically for a moment here. When I talk about white people here, I'm not talking about you individually in this room or those who are watching this. I'm talking about a particular ideology that has persisted from the beginning of our country. So let me save you an email uh, before you send me something. <laughs> to be seen as a collective whole over and against another person is what created a narrative to justify atrocity. Now, to get to some of the rationale that sustains this narrative, it's important to look at some of the founding documents in our country, in particular, the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence begins with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, I don't know about women back then, but all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, But at the end of the Declaration of Independence, we begin to see these words as well. He, the King of Great Britain, has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. As the Native American theologian Mark Charles has said about this statement here, according to the Declaration of Independence, natives are dehumanized as savages who stood in the way of westward expansion. How do you justify a genocide of people who were here before Europeans landed? It's very simple. You have to dehumanize them. You have to create a story that they are less than human. And if you can call them savages, you can justify their removal. You can justify their extinction. This is a narrative that has been sustained through the founding documents of this country. How do you justify slavery in the same way? If someone is not fully human, you have no problem owning them. And so whether you're owning them or exterminating them, the narrative of racial difference says you are less than human, therefore we have no problem owning you or no problem exterminating you. And so from the time European settlers came into this country, a dangerous and dehumanizing narrative was created and persisted. And the question that I was asking in my preparation was, what did Christians do about it? How did the church respond to it? And the church responded in three ways. The first way that the church responded is by doing nothing. Not even preach to them. Why? Because... In particular, with slavery, African slaves might not even have a soul, according to this narrative. It was Christian Smith and Michael Emerson in their fantastic book, Divided by Faith, who said, traditionally, white Christians paid little attention to the slave's souls, The pre-1700 views that black slaves were less than fully human, did not possess souls, and were incapable of learning, as well as simple indifference by white Christians, all led to a lack of interest in evangelizing slaves. And so the first response of the church was, don't even bother with them because they don't even have souls. The second response of the church was to preach to their soul, but don't touch the system. And this is the ideology that has pervaded the church up till this day. I'll preach to your soul, but I could care less about your body. I'll preach to your spirit, but I could care less about the system. And so the second way was we can preach to them because, yes, they do need Jesus, but let's keep them in this because it's economically viable for us. The third action that the church took was through abolitionists. That they said, not only do we have to preach to them, this system is corrupt as well. And not only do we have to give them the gospel, we have to use the gospel to dismantle these oppressive systems. And wonderfully, there were wonderful prophetic communities of churches throughout the ages, not a lot of them here and there on the margins, who would, in their theology, understand that the gospel was more about saving your soul. That when they made an altar call and some evangelistic revivals, not only did you have to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to Jesus meant you were saying no to slavery. And they would say, if you're going to say yes to Jesus, sign your name here because we want to abolish this institution. They understood something about the comprehensive nature of the gospel. And so the church either later later for the slaves or preached their souls believed the system or let's abolish the system altogether while preaching the gospel. And so in 1865, the institution of slavery came to an end. But the, the power of the narrative of racial difference continued to persist. And so even though the institution of slavery was gone, the narrative continued in the minds of many people. And so black people and other people of color were, were continued to be seen as inferior. And one of the ways that this was clearly evident was through segregation and lynching. In South Carolina, in the early 1900s, black and white workers could not work in the same room, enter through the same door, look out the same window. Many industries wouldn't hire black people. Unions passed rules to exclude them. In 1914, Texas had entire towns in which black people could not live in. Blacks could not leave their homes after 10 p.m., There were signs that that we've all seen as we looked at civil rights movements and all that that were marked whites only or colored, which hung over doors and ticket windows and drinking fountains. Jim Wallace notes that these laws were violently enforced, that whites beat blacks with impunity, relying on all white police, prosecutors, judges, and juries to protect them. And at least nearly 3,500 black men, women, and children were lynched, that is, publicly murdered. So even though the institution of slavery was over, the narrative persisted with some dangerous consequences. Even after, beyond just Jim Crow's segregation laws, beyond lynching, when you look even beyond that, we see that the, 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 the myth of racial difference has persisted. When you look at what happened with Japanese internment camps during World War II, during World War II, after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, 120,000 Japanese Americans were put in internment camps. This was forced relocation. Think about it. You are living in your home. Now the government has said, get out. You're a threat to us leave your job you have to leave your school and for for 2 to 3 years japanese americans were now put in these camps this was forced relocation based on racist thinking how do i know well in 1988 president reagan signed into law the civil liberties act which apologized for the internment on behalf of the U.S. government. And the legislation admitted that the government actions were based on, and I quote, racial prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. When you look at the civil rights movement, we have all the video, we have all the pictures to see that the myth of the narrative of racial difference persisted over and over and over again. And what people tend to say is, can we leave the past in the past? That's much too simplistic. Because we are still wrestling with the residue of institutional racism. In his book, Playing God, Andy Crouch writes these words. The artifacts of racism may largely be gone. There are no longer any signs over water fountains that say whites only. But racism was never a matter of just of artifacts. That is, you can still, the sign can be gone, but the system can still remain. The narrative that was created endured. Endured. And again, the core of institutional racism is how power is disproportionately used to give advantages to some and disadvantages to others. And we see it still in 2017. I'm going to look at just three areas. I had 47. I'm going to just give you three areas where this takes place. When you look at mass incarceration, more than 60% of people in prison today are people of color. Black men are six times more likely to be incarcerated than white men, and Hispanic men are two and a half times more likely. For black men in their 30s, one in every 10 is in prison or jail on any given day. One in three African-American men will be imprisoned at least at some point in his lifetime. This compares to one in six Latino men and one in 17 white men. Another statistic showed that black children in the criminal justice system are 18 times more likely than white children to be sentenced as adults. When you look at education, not just mass incarceration, you look at education. In 2014, for the first time in almost 15 years, the Department of Education did some research on access opportunities and discipline from all 97,000 public schools across the country. And the findings highlight a particular disparity according to race. The study found out that African-Americans and Latino students aren't always offered essential courses in math and science. That Too many kids are taught by inexperienced teachers, and a high percentage of suspensions happen among children of color. That with regard to suspensions, research shows that African-American children comprise nearly 18% of those who are students, but account for 50% of all suspensions. Only 18% of them are students, but they account for 50% of suspensions. When you look at the racial wealth inequality that exists in our country, on an average, white households in middle-income uh, own eight times as much wealth as middle-income black earners and 10 times as much as middle-income Latino earners. A statistic said that it'll take 228 years for the average black family to reach the same level of wealth white families have today. And for Latino families, it would take 84 years. Now, someone can look at this and say the reason for the disparity is simply about hard work and discipline. And some are extreme to say that uh, uh, people of color are just intellectually inferior and maybe just a little bit more lazy. Or we can say, That there is a larger force at work. Or we can say that there are powers and principalities that exist. Or we can say that there is a system that gives advantages to some and disadvantages to others. We can say that individuals control their destiny. Or we can say that there are harmful and sinful systems in society that benefit some but not others. Now, in the midst of all this, I imagine there are at least four things we're thinking and feeling in this room. For some of us, we're feeling anger. For some of us, we're feeling grief. For some of us, we're feeling despair. For some of us, we're thinking in denial. But no matter how you're feeling, I want to offer just four words. To anchor us. Like I said, this message is not about really what to do. It's about how to see. But hopefully these four words would help us as we navigate the future. The first word I want to offer to everyone in this room is the word repent. All of us, beginning with me, to repent. Repent of the ways that we have allowed this narrative of racial difference to infect us and us perpetuate that back out into the world. Repent of the ways that we have seen ourselves as inferior. Repent of the ways that we have been complicit in the ways that institutional racism and sin has infected our world and we've said nothing about it. Repenting of the ways that we see. It was Jesus when he said, repent because the kingdom of God is here. Jesus wasn't talking about behaviors. Jesus was talking about how you see. The word repent is the, in Greek is the word metanoia, is the word which means change your mind. In other words, look at things differently. See things differently. At the heart of repentance is a willingness to change your perspective. Not about what to do and what not to do. At the core of repentance is a change of perspective. And we all need a change of perspective because the reality is many of us have, have brought into the myth of this individualism. That the reason some people are wealthy is because they worked hard. And the reason someone's not wealthy is because they didn't work. We've bought into this myth of individualism. We've brought into the myth of the American dream, that while the, the American dream, for all that's good, the American dream basically says, if you work hard enough by yourself, you can get what you want. And while I believe that many people have, have worked very hard individually to get what they have here, the American dream does not take into consideration the institutional forces, powers, and principalities that are coming against people on a day-to-day basis repent. The kingdom of God is here. We are also called to lament. That for many of us, what do we do with our raging emotions? What do we do with our fear? What do we do with our sadness? What do we do with our anger? Well, the Bible has words for it. It's lament. That two-thirds of the Psalms, 100 out of 150 Psalms, are Psalms of lament, Psalms of grief, Psalms of people pouring out their hearts before God. And that's what we're invited to do as well. That when we look at our history, for all the good that exists in this country, there's a lot of bad that exists in this country as well. And sometimes the only thing you can do is begin the process of lamenting, lamenting with people, lamenting with people who have been the objects of mistreatment and being taken advantage of. And our and our lamenting is not just to have empathy. Our lamenting is to, cre- is, is to be an impetus that gives us the ability to have a new social imagination, that things can be a little different than the way things are. We are called to lament. We're called to prayerfully process. That unless we are prayerful in our discernment, prayerful in everything I'm sharing with you today, prayerful in what God is calling us to do, will be reactionary and contribute to the unhealthy culture that is in our country, whether on social media or whether in the workplace. We are called to prayerfully process and speak out of prayerful hearts. And in light of all this, I want to invite you to remember that Jesus is at work. The best news in the world. Is that in spite of the problem of sin that, is, that we face in our hearts and we face in our world, that God is at work in Jesus to make all things new. This is why I love the book of Revelation. Because at the end of Revelation, it says these words. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. Know what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, I will make all things new. No, Jesus uses present tense language. I am making all things new. That is to say, all we might see is problems in our world. And with all the problems of our world, Jesus says, I am making all things new. All we might see is institutional racism and how some are taking being taken advantage of. But Jesus says, I am making all things new. And Jesus has entrusted to us the message of the gospel. And the gospel is big enough, brothers and sisters to deal with our individual racial prejudice and big enough to deal with our institutional racism. The gospel is big enough to deal with the ways that we have sinned and big enough to deal with the ways we've been sinned against. The, The gospel is big enough to defeat powers and principalities in our world, and big enough to create a new family because of the blood of Jesus. And the gospel I speak about is not just a personal salvation and a private spirituality. The gospel I speak about at the core of it is simply a confession that says Jesus is Lord. That's what the gospel is. Jesus (laughs) is Lord. And... Because Jesus is Lord, he says, I'm making all things new. Because Jesus is Lord, there is going to come a day where racism will be defeated. Because Jesus is Lord, reconciliation is possible. Because Jesus is Lord, a new future is possible. We need a gospel that's big enough to transform human hearts and a gospel that's big enough to create a new social imagination not legislated by politics but empowered by the spirit of God we need a new kind of imagination that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can permeate in our hearts in our systems in our society and so let me close with this the only thing that's self-evident to me as a Christian is that Jesus Christ is Lord? He's making all things new, and we can participate in that reality today. Let's pray together. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to close your eyes for a moment. to begin to process everything i said today it's it's going to take days and weeks and months but for us this is just a starting point to begin to think differently about the world to see differently i imagine what you're feeling at the moment what you're thinking at the moment maybe it is anger and sadness and hopelessness or denial. And wherever you are, Jesus wants to meet you. The Holy Spirit wants to pour out his power and grace on you. But it means we have to have a willingness to change our mind, a willingness to repent, a a willingness to go in a different direction. I want to give us a minute just of silence to take in the ways that God might be speaking to you. And then we'll close with singing and celebration. But whatever emotion you're sensing right now, to offer it before the living Jesus, who's making all things new, and that includes you as well. So let's take one minute and then we'll we'll sing together. Lord Jesus, a topic like this can be incredibly overwhelming, but Lord, by your spirits and by your grace, we can begin to navigate some of this rough terrain. So Holy Spirit, we need your power. We need your anointing. We need your wisdom. Lord, give us eyes to see in the ways you want us to see. Give us humility to be open to the ways of your spirits, as disorienting as that might be. And Lord, give us a vision to see that the gospel is much larger than we often think it is. We sing to you now, Lord, words of praise. Words of worship, words of adoration. And as we sing, Lord, would you come? Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your life. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Let's all stand. Let's sing together. Amen. And that's what we hold on to, that in the face of challenges and Uh, injustice and personal tragedy and personal obstacles that our God reigns. And we, we walk by faith and not by sight. Which basically means what you see with your eyes might tell a story. But we don't walk by what we see with our eyes. We walk by faith. That is what God is doing often behind the scenes. And so as we close our service, I want to invite our prayer team to come to my left. And to my right, we have the Lord's table and there's so many things to be praying for and some of you probably came in here uh, with your own personal concerns and your own challenges that you're facing today and you need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You need God to fill you with his love, his grace, his power, his forgiveness and our prayer team would love to pray for you personally for whatever needs you have today. Maybe something resonated today in the sermon. Maybe you want to see differently and you need Prayer. Maybe you want to respond in a a way that you sense God calling you to, and you need courage. Maybe you feel deeply uh, wounded, and you need healing. For whatever need you have, our God wants to meet you. And if you're not a Christian today, He loves you with an everlasting love. And this is the God who wants to enter into deep, transforming relationship with you. So our prayer team will be here for whatever needs you have to pray for you. And then we have the Lord's table on my right. When we take the bread and the cup, we are reminding ourselves that we have identified ourselves with Jesus. Identified ourselves with his cross, with his resurrection, with the way of his kingdom. And So when we take the bread, we're saying, Lord, I want to live in the way you lived. I want to live in a way that says, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as you take the bread and dip it in the cup, may God begin to remind you of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be part of this gospel and kingdom of God that he wants to transform the world with. And so whether it's for prayer or whether it's for to receive the bread and the cup, I invite you to come forward. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands to receive a blessing. If you're new to our church, we close every gathering like this because this is a posture of receiving blessing and God wants to bless you. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you, shine his face upon you, and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to this truth that Jesus Christ is making all things new. And may the Holy Spirit empower you for what? God has called you to do in this season of your life. And so I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said...